You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Shout out to all pharmacy owners out there, your champions of your community during this pandemic. Your pharmacy is more important than ever before. There's a product out there I'd like you to take a look at. I'm talking about the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack. For the same copay for your patients as pen needles alone, the UltiGuard Safe Pack provides 100 premium pen needles and a sharps container all in one. When pharmacies dispense the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack, they see consistently higher revenue and higher margins. Check this product out today and let us know what you think. Go to www.ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. That's ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. You can get a free sample pack on the website. Thanks for all you do as frontline healthcare providers. And thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Pharmacy Podcast Nation. This is Todd Yuri, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We're returning to transforming a nation. This is episode after episode of pharmacists changing our society, changing our community of healthcare providers. We have focused on um, several very sensitive topics. We started out with facing racism as well as health disparities. We even got into spirituality and medicine. However, the most um, popular of the episode of the series so far, it's been a four part series so far, has been the sexual harassment in pharmacy transforming the nation. And this really stems and has been launched based on um, a very brave um, participant in the pharmacy industry, Dr. Rebecca Smith. Um, I've been so excited to get to know her. She's so sincere. Um, she's so open to listening and understanding other uh, other people's plights and, and, and fight with sexual harassment and what that really means, as well as understanding it from her perception directly and how it's affected her professional life. And with that, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Rebecca Smith uh, back to the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, thanks, Todd. So um, I'm Becky Smith. I'm a trauma emergency general surgery and a neurocritical care clinical pharmacy specialist at UAMS or University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences um, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm a fairly new clinical practitioner. I've only been in my position for a little over a year now since I finished up my PGY2 in critical care at the University of Kentucky. Um, so pretty new practitioner. And then um, we also have a few other um, female guests with us today. So I will let Jackie introduce herself now. Hi, everyone. My name is Jackie Johnston, and I'm a critical care pharmacist and clinical assistant professor. My clinical role is in a surgical trauma neurological intensive care unit at St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey, where I also serve as the PGI-1 residency director. And my faculty appointment is at the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers University. Similar to Becky, I have only been in my role for a short period of time. So this was my first position after completion of my PGY2. And I've been in my role for about three years now. 
Thanks, Jackie. Um, we also have Brooke and Ashley Barlow. Uh, Ashley, you want to go first? Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me today. My name is Ashley Barlow, as Becky said. I am a PGY2 oncology resident at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in sunny Houston, Texas. Um, I've only been a licensed pharmacist for about a year and four months now, <laughs> and um, I'm excited to be here today and talk with you all. I'll pass the baton over to Brooke now to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Brooke Barlow. I'm currently a PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at University of Kentucky Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I'm from Thomas Jefferson University is where I went to my College of Pharmacy, and um, I'm very excited as well to be here with you all today. Okay, thanks everybody. So, so the four of us were um, approached about recording this podcast because we have all experienced sexual harassment and we all have experienced it within different parts of our profession. Um, so me personally, I first started encountering issues with sexual harassment as I was a student pharmacist. Um, when I was a student, I was obviously focused on making good grades and setting myself up for residency. I knew really early on in my career that I wanted to do critical care and I knew that that would take two years of residency. So I tried to build up my CV with um, resident or with research projects and um, other involvement in our organizations. Um, and then I also took electives that focused on residency preparation and also on critical care um, specifically. And so um, in taking all those classes and in trying to be as involved as I could, I was introduced to one of our new faculty members who was pretty close to our age. Um, he had completed residency not that long ago and became um, quickly became one of my mentors because he was willing to help me be the best that I could in pharmacy school in order to get a residency. Um, and he was also the course coordinator of a lot of my classes. So we um, pretty quickly had a good mentor-mentee relationship. Um, it all started out very appropriately. Uh, however, it then turned kind of to flirting, I would say. Um, he would send text messages just saying like how good my outfit looked or how his last name would be a good last name for me. And I guess going back to like the scale that was mentioned in the first episode, I really didn't think much of it then. I maybe would think he would be a one or a two on like the scale of sexual harassment, but not anything that I needed to do something about because although he was flirting with me, he was also helping me because he was, um, putting me on projects or offering to let me help with manuscripts or things like that. So again, I didn't really think that much of it. Um, I knew other girls were also getting the same kinds of messages and they weren't doing anything. So I just kind of blew it off. Um, however, the messages became more frequent, more inappropriate pictures started to be exchanged. And this is again, like a whole group of girls that this was happening to. Um, several of us asked the individual to stop and he would apologize and say that he was being inappropriate and he would be completely normal, like back to a mentor. Um, however, it would quickly re revert back. And so it was almost like 
a grooming process for all of us. Um, we, I say we, but I guess I can just say I, I felt like, oh, like he's finally going to be appropriating and he's going to help me get a residency. So I'll just deal with like the flirting text messages. Um, but like I said, they became more and more frequent, more and more inappropriate. And as a student, I didn't really know what to do at that point or if I should report him or just kind of keep going with it. And so that's kind of where my first experience with this was. Again, it was, it started out like innocent flirting and then just kind of quickly progressed on the inappropriate scale. Um, but I guess I'll let someone else share kind of where um, they this affected them in their career. So Jackie, you wanna share? Yes, thank you. Um, so I think, in the previous episode, we talked about the scale of sexual harassment ranging from one to 10. And I think all of our stories fall in a different area on that scale. Um, so although I would say my experience was mild, so maybe a score of a two or three at most a four, I think it's important that we recognize that severity doesn't mean a lack of importance. Um, so during COVID-19, I actually had the opportunity to connect with a group of critical care pharmacists across the country. And this really established a platform in which I had the ability to discuss literature or treatment modalities or management of complications related to COVID, which was very helpful because I hadn't had that support system prior. So this networking provided me the opportunity to also contribute to a manuscript, which really reinforced the idea of collaborative practice. Um, so while I had known this individual very briefly and had met him informally at a conference prior, I really hadn't had established any personal or professional relationships with him prior to COVID and prior to these experiences. Um, but it really was over only a few days time that this individual began messaging me privately outside of our group messages and the messaging really progressed from being innocent in what appeared genuine at first to very quickly being the individual testing the boundaries. And I think what's important to point out here is when this person tested the boundaries or when people test the boundaries, they often are very aware of what they're doing. Um, so kind of like Becky had mentioned, he was grooming um, or really seeing how far he could go. And this was obvious because he would make comments like, was that too much or did I go too far? Um, so I think never having been in this situation prior and knowing we were collaborating on a project and really relying on one, each, one another during the pandemic, I also, similar to Becky, tried to brush the comments off. And sometimes it was even with a ha-ha or a laughy emoji just to kind of diffuse the situation. So eventually I failed to respond to comments that I felt were inappropriate because this became a recurrence. And the conversation similarly would be diverted back to clinical questions or standard conversations. Um, but again, it wasn't before long. Conversations took a turn back for the worst and towards that inappropriate behavior, which really pushed me towards not engaging in conversation at all. And sadly, this was not just me not engaging in conversation with the individual, but it actually decreased my responses to the group chats and the other collaboration we had. Um, so that's my experience, although similar, but very different to Becky's, and I'm sure quite different than the stories you're about to hear. I, I really think all of our stories fall somewhere on this spectrum of one to 10, but again, no number is appropriate. 
All right. Thanks, Jackie, for sharing. Um, and I totally agree with you. Like we represent like such a larger population of females that this has unfortunately happened to. And just want to reiterate what Jackie said that even if on our fake scale of sexual harassment that we keep referring to, um, even if you feel like your experience was a zero versus a 10 versus a seven or eight, um, it's still not okay ever for it to happen. Um, especially when it affects your, um, career, whether you're a student or a new practitioner or at any stage in your career, really, it, it shouldn't happen and it's not okay. So, um, just with that, I guess I'll go to, um, Ashley now to share. Yeah. Thank you so much, Becky. Um, and you know, I feel like our, I will say that me and Brooke have a very similar story. Our story is parallel. We both met this individual at the same exact time and in the same way. Um, so, you know, obviously when me and Brooke took a step into our pharmacy career, we love social media. Everyone is, is no, we, you know, everyone knows about our presence on there. And I think this person also, this is how we got connected to this individual. Um, so after kind of posting all of our clinical pearls and, and things, this, this person sent us a direct message and was just like all other messages we received, whether it's by males or females made this person made himself seem like he was like everyone else and just wanted to say how excited he was to have us be a part of the Twitter community and to share our clinical pearls. He also was quick to jump into offering us a lot of great advice about our future for residency programs. Took almost two hours one day to have a conversation with us on the phone, deciding between what residency program is the best, where to look. It felt like I was gaining a really great mentor in my pharmacy career early on. I was very appreciative of, you know, his help and seeing this individual's track record of, you know, really great publications, um, great residency training, all that kind of stuff. It was almost like a role model to me. And I think once me, once Brooke and I were quick, quick to dispel to this person that we really appreciated his help and, and saw him to be quite, um, you know, a great role model to us, that was when the tables had turned, unfortunately. And it was almost kind of like once this individual had seen that we were appreciative of, of their help, um, they, they took things into, you know, what that's when kind of the, the sexual harassment started to begin. Um, so I think that it was kind of like a, almost a lure or a trap as to, you know, where we feel like, you know, we, we just felt that we're appreciative of his, of his advice. And then, you know, they're quick to turn into things that might be less appropriate. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately at first I kind of thought it was just me. I was getting these like these random messages to myself and I was almost afraid to tell Brooke to, to say like what was going on. Um, you know, her being my best friend and my sister, we were quick to share messages with each other and we were both unfortunately getting the same kind of, you know, mixed messages from this individual that would one day be extremely inappropriate. Um, you know, for me being a pharmacy student and much younger than this individual, I at first thought of it as a round of an eight to 10 on that, on that sexual harassment scale, just thinking that how could this ever happen with someone who, seems to be such a great professional. Um, and, you know, once me and Brooke shared, we, we both agreed that we completely thought it was, it was completely inappropriate, but, you know, as we'll discuss later, we, we didn't know what to do about it. Um, and, you know, we would, I personally took the time to call them and, and say how I just wanted to make sure that the intentions were clear and that our, you know, this, 
friendship that we had was strictly professional. Um, this individual was like, yes, it is absolutely professional. You're right. This will not happen. I'm sorry. I took things the wrong way. And, you know, just as, as Becky and everyone has mentioned so far that it was quick to turn back into professional advancement opportunities and then back into sexual harassment conversations. So, you know, I think we all really have the same kind of parallel story, which is overwhelming. Um, but you know, also, also kind of, you know, unique for us to all connect on this level. So I'll pass it back over to Becky. Thanks for sharing, Ashley. Um, and I know probably yours and, and Brooke's stories are very similar in, in that your sisters went through this kind of at the same time. But Brooke, do you have some more to share? So I think, Ashley, thank you. You did a great job of kind of setting a background for the story. Um, I will say that it, it kind of did differ, especially as Ashley and I were together in pharmacy school. Um, and a lot of this happened while we were in the same household. However, as we dispersed to residency, I think the, the whole conversation and, and sexual harassment piece of it kind of was amplified. And maybe it was more or less the fact that our communication between Ashley and I was less. So maybe this person kind of felt as if, you know, we would not communicate or talk about these kinds of things if we weren't right next to each other. So I guess my part of um, that I would add to Ashley's story that may be a little bit different is, you know, as I'm going into the area of critical care and specializing, this person was also specialized in that in that area. Um, and I will say it, I think one of the hardest parts for me was the feeling of manipulation. You know, it was at one moment there was, as everyone is mentioning, some sort of professional development opportunity that was offered. And for me as a, you know, in a new building practitioner trying to develop my career path, what I want it to look like, in someone who sits in such high positions of leadership, and, and success all around in our profession, it was extremely hard for me to say, you know, that these episodes, very intermittent, but still present of sexual harassment and balancing that with the opportunities for professional development. I mean, it was, it was truly a mind game, you know, in my mind. And I, I knew the sexual harassment was there. And just like Jackie mentioned, I tried to brush it off because it was like so many people that I know and that I'm around every day communicate with this individual normally, you know what I mean? So I was like, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should just brush it off and things will be okay. You know, we continue to talk about different collaborative opportunities and papers. And I know that this person has told me as an individual, you know, I'll help you find a job. I'll help you find a career path that makes you, you know, feel like you're, you're satisfied and your career is successful. So it, it, and to me, the hardest part about coming forward with all of this, and I have before, you know, prior to kind of Becky posting her tweet, it, it has come to me that, you know, something should be said because it got to the point where I was feeling, you know, as if it was impacting my own mental health. And however, I think that was the hardest thing. It was like, how do I kind of balance this sexual harassment and understanding that that's not okay, but then these things as a new practitioner, you know, to kind of feel like my career could be amplified through this individual. And it came down to really telling myself that I can do this on my own and I don't need this individual's support you know, in that manner. And I think for me, this whole, you know, how this has all come about is really 
it needs to come down to providing people an opportunity to share their voice. And, you know, I'm really grateful to have this opportunity today. And I hope that there are opportunities in the future for people to feel okay to express, you know, that these are concerns, there, there is sexual harassment that occurs out there and to not feel so conflicted or manipulated um, in these different scenarios. So that's kind of what, what I had to share as my piece of the story. All right. Thanks, Brooke. You know, it's just interesting, like myself and you, Brooke and Ashley, this all really started when we were students. And I feel like that's the most, one of the most vulnerable um, time periods that this can happen in someone's pharmacy career. Like when you are a student pharmacist and you have your whole career in front of you, but you're also just trying to figure out what to do and how do I get a residency and how do I how do I become a critical care pharmacist? How do I do this? How do I do that? And so when someone who, like you said, has so many great leadership positions and is so well-known and publishes like a paper a day comes to you and try and is offering to mentor you, you kind of brush off anything inappropriate because you know that this person has all these connections and they're going to help you get to that next step where like if you didn't have that some that person in your in your corner, like you might not get there, or it would take more for you to get there. Um, not that we couldn't get to where we are right now, all on our own. We are all um, amazing women. So, but just to say, like as a student, that kind of went through my mind. And also, I wanted to touch on the manipulation thing that you or point that you brought up. So, um, I already shared kind of. The beginning of my story and unfortunately my story with this individual in particular spans many years and I won't go into all of that but I will just say that I also felt so manipulated um, manipulated by this person um, because I would essentially in the relationship or mentee mentor relationship whenever it would get inappropriate but then something would happen that I would need his his connections. So the first thing obviously was matching for PGY-1. Um, once, I, once I did match with my PGY-1 residency, I thought, okay, this relationship can end. Like I have this awesome opportunity um, to, you know, set myself apart for PGY-2 critical care residencies. Like I don't need this person anymore. And that was the case for several months. I didn't have any conversations or any interactions with that person. Um, However, it quickly picked right back up again when I was looking for PGY2s. And he reached out and said, hey, I'm talking to all these RPDs about you. And so I felt like I had to be nice to this person again. And, and again, it started out appropriate. Um, and so I didn't mind talking to him when it was the case, um, when he was being appropriate. But again, would quickly turn inappropriate. And it just, again and again, I thought that I could end the relationship, but then I ended up being manipulated back into it, even so far as to when I was looking for jobs after my PGY2, I still was being manipulated by this person. And so I just, it's just crazy like how long this has gone on. And um, it's unfortunate. Like I remember from the first podcast, Brittany and Moja kind of mentioned how they almost felt like they were enablers of this individual. And, you know, that, that really made me sad, but it also is true. So, you know, like, and maybe, maybe people 
really didn't know about all of this or maybe they just assumed that it was all rumors and just hearsay. But I remember when I matched for my PGY2 and I saw like the CVs of the of all my preceptors and he was all over them. And I again just felt like I'm never going to escape this person. Like he is just everywhere. And like these, all of my preceptors are amazing and I love them. And I know that they would do anything for me. So like, why are they associating with this person? And I think that that's, that was one of the hardest things for me as far as like coming forward. Um, because so my story started when I was a student. Um, so it started several, several years ago, like 2015, now 2020. Um, but you know, there's, there's reasons that each of us didn't step up and report this person, or maybe we mentioned it to someone, but we didn't like continue to say like, no, this is happening. This is not okay. And so for me personally, it, at first it was because I was a student, like who, who was I going to go to? Like, and I needed connections to advance my career. And then it was, well, I'm a resident and everyone here knows him and likes him and publishes and collaborates with him. So why would I tell them like they, they need him too for like their personal and professional careers. Um, and so really like now that I'm kind of established in in my position um, is when I finally decided to come forward, but I just wish that, you know, I would have stepped up sooner. And so I kind of want to ask you guys um, if you would like to share what made you finally speak out against this individual or about sexual harassment in general. And we'll start with Jackie. So I think that's a really important question is why didn't any of us come forward earlier? And granted, I'm only months into this experience and you guys are years. Um, but I think the reality is, is People don't like talking about things that they're not comfortable talking about. And sexual harassment is really one of those things. Um, so I'll admit, I didn't feel comfortable talking about sexual harassment. I didn't want to come forward. And I think we've seen so much from the Me Too movement. And I didn't want to jeopardize my own career being the whistleblower. Um, pharmacy is a small world. And like Becky had mentioned, a lot of people knew this individual. And the last thing I wanted was to jeopardize my career advancement or my success uh, moving forward. But then again, thanks to Becky Smith, I also felt it was my time to speak up. So thank you, Becky, for being strong and leading this movement. Um, so my personal motive for coming forward, I think really was my because of my experiences as a mentor and advisor. So as a residency director and as a professor, I'm three years into my career after residency. And I'm really confident with who I am both personally and professionally, but I think I contribute a lot of that to the people that have helped me along the way. I've been very fortunate with my mentors. So Mojda was actually one of my mentors and still continues to be, but my mentee experiences were really positive. And during those times, I didn't feel like anyone ever talked about sexual harassment with me. And even as a mentor, I can, now I can admit I haven't had those discussions with my mentees. So I think we've all had some degree of training on sexual harassment, whether it's clicking through a health stream or sitting in a HR session, but those sessions have never really addressed 
how to truly bring these issues to light. Um, so when I learned that other individuals, especially young females and young female, female professionals have been through similar experiences, many of them much worse than my own, I thought it was my due diligence to really speak up for not just females, but for females in this profession. And fortunately, I, I truly believe there's power in numbers. And I think that's exactly what we've seen with this movement. So thank you again, Becky, for taking the lead on this movement and bringing this issue to light. But those are my reasons for not speaking up initially and why it's so important for me to speak up now. All right, thanks, Jackie. Um, Ashley, would you like to share too? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually kind of crazy to think back about how many, I would say I've probably told a handful of people about the situation throughout either my PGY1 residency or like back in the beginning when this happened in pharmacy school outside of Brooke, obviously. And, you know, I got the, I got a unified response from almost everyone saying, you know, just block him, you know, just, just stop talking to him, that kind of thing. And it was like, it seemed like it would have been so easy, but there was just other ways for this person to like leech back into my life. Um, and you know, and then now that all of this has come out, you know, I, and I remember seeing on, on Becky's tweet, you know, someone was like, no, you know, you should not just have to block this person. Like something should be reported about this because if it's not you that's going to be affected in the future, you know, if you just block them and walk the other way, it's going to be the five other girls down the road, you know, that they may be affected as well. And so I'll just never forget how many people I confided in. And, you know, they were just kind of like, we don't really know what to, we don't know who to report this to. Um, and it's that whole thing with being outside of that person's institution, um, you know, not having like a unified pharmacy, um, like place where to report this within pharmacy. So, you know, you, everyone has brought up a great point so far. And I think what's really empowered me is I was, I think I almost fainted when I saw Becky's tweet. I was like, it's finally time. It's here. It's time for me to say something about it because I wouldn't say I was technically in fear. I wasn't, I didn't feel like my, my career was in jeopardy knowing that, every time this individual would, would push past the limit for me, I would say, Hey, you know, someone's going to find out about this eventually. And you're making me feel uncomfortable. It's time to stop. I knew I kind of like put my word out there in terms of feeling uncomfortable, but, um, so I never felt like it was in jeopardy. I just didn't know what to do. But once I saw Becky said something about it, I was like, you know, wow, I really feel like this is time. I got very emotional because I felt so appreciative that she was willing to be so forward about it. Um, when, you know, I know me and many other people before had just kind of been like, eventually he'll stop, you know, and that was never a reality, but I'm so happy that now we were able to say something about it. So I think, you know, my motivation was primarily because I seen other people were talking about it too, and I couldn't be any more grateful for that. Um, I'll pass it over to Brooke now to kind of talk about her experience with coming forward as well. I would definitely share similar feelings with Jackie and Ashley as well, where it feels like it felt like a large proportion of this, why, you know, we, or I did not speak for, speak forward about this and only to a small group of people is again, because what do we do? We don't have currently right now, any type of central reporting system, or, you know, it's, it's not like there's no formal process on how to go about reporting this. So you know, when you do say it to someone, where, where do you go from there type thing? So it was almost easier to not say anything than to say something and not know what would happen. Um, I also think that when it comes to why speak forward now and why kind of come forward about this issue, a large part of it for me was it definitely had mental weight where I felt like my career depended on this person. And that is in no means 
the way I should think or the way any other woman should have to feel about a man that's also in their career. So I feel very strongly, you know, that I feel like my mentors here, and I'm extremely thankful for the women, um, you know, here at University of Kentucky and other ones that I've met through social media, um, like Jackie and Rebecca, for example, and the empowerment that we get to say that, you know, we are strong in our profession and, you know, I can do this. I'm a, I'm a new growing practitioner, but I don't essentially, I can build my own you know, rapport and things like that without having to depend on this other person. Although they are successful, I can find my own path. So I truly did feel like I I know how I mentally felt and I don't want other women, other students or residents to truly have to feel that way. And I wanna empower them to speak up and know that they can create their own career paths and they don't really have to depend on others to do that for them. So, I mean, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to speak up and I hope that other women are empowered through this podcast as well. I'd like to make a comment that, that was brought up before we started recording. Um, just from the four of you and 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 Rebecca in in just saying where and what organizations do we leverage as a as a pharmacy profession to ensure that this this ends in and has repercussions on someone that um that is an offender and what's exciting is since um, Dr. Smith has kicked this off and, and kind of reignited the topic of sexual harassment in pharmacy. The American Pharmacist Association has, in fact, stepped up and put out a, um, a press release on September 21st to really hammer the entire subject and not hide behind, um, you know, an organization, but actually come forward. So I'm very impressed that the the board of trustees has signed um, a um, a petition like gathering to ensure that we can stop this. But one of the ideas that that I wanted to interject to the to the panel today is the National Association Board of Pharmacy, and the reason is 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 I think with your license at stake. If I am a preceptor, if I am a professor, if I'm a work associate at a hospital system or a community pharmacy, and I'm working with a young lady that trusts me and is looking to me for advancement, and we go out to lunch, and I reach across this table, and I touch her hand, and then two days later, I you know send um, a flirtatious text, and then it progresses to me asking uh, her out and she refrains and I continue and I continue and I leave her notes and send those emoji texts that we talked about last time and just the progression of harassment and not being professional. What body is there, organization like the NAPB, that could in fact um, cast a warning, for example, in, in building a process. And then in fact, if it were um, continuation and or a very serious offense, could leverage your license at a, as a pharmacist in suspension um, to absolutely end it, but also bring um, documentation to this so that this individual is flagged on whatever levels that they come up with uh, of severity, and obviously severity 
is tied back to the offense in, of, in and of itself, which we would have to have volunteers for some kind of uh, panel that, that could be brought together uh, to make those determinations. But regardless, do does this panel today, uh, Brooke, Ashley, Jackie, um, Rebecca, we, I want to hear from you on what governing body you believe could really have the most national impact. Yes, thanks, Todd. Um, this became a very apparent issue to us early on um, after my initial tweets. Um, I started to get in tons of stories from different girls about different individuals and their sexual harassment experiences. And although I was there to listen to them and to you know say, I'm sorry, I that should never have happened to you, et cetera, there's not really anything else I can do. And um, we, we as in me and Brittany Bizzle, who was on the first episode of the podcast, we didn't really know who to turn to and who to take these stories to. Um, for the individual that I had sexual harassment issues with, we decided to turn to the organizations that he has current um, leadership positions within and just to um, let them know that this is happening. This is a widespread issue. Like there's several girls. Um, and essentially what, what they did was they pointed us to their sexual harassment policies, which state that in order to file a formal complaint, you need to first file a complaint within your institution, and then you need to let them handle it. And then if that doesn't work, then you can go here for this. And then if that doesn't work, you can go here. And it's just a very convoluted system. And each of the pharmacy organizations kind of have that same policy and that you should start where, like within your institution, as far as the reporting. Um, the problem, at least with um, the current issue, is the person isn't at any of our institutions. Um, and so what, what do you do when that happens? And when we asked um, one of the institution or one of the organizations specifically that they said, oh, well, I'm not really sure what you do then. And so again, it became very evident that there's just a lack of, of reporting. And even if you were able to report this up through, let's say APHA, then is that disseminated to SCCM or is that disseminated to ACCP or NCPA or ASHP, like there's just so many pharmacy organizations. Um, and you, even though something like this is talked about and um, it's made its way up the ladder in leadership in one of the organizations, they're all very separated. Um, and so really what, what I envision and what I hope for is a, is an inter organizational reporting system to where you can file a report. It doesn't have to be someone at your institution because we have conferences um, through all of these organizations multiple times a year. Um, so things can happen that aren't in your institution and that's not a viable way of, re of reporting these things. Um, but some sort of reporting mechanism that is shared through all the organizations. Um, and as much as I want that to happen, that seems like a very big task and a very big project and who's going to man it. And so I think another way of going about it is kind of what you said, Todd, and 
thinking about, well, who governs us as pharmacists? And that's NABP. All of our licensure comes from them. If we want to go to another state and get reciprocity, or if we you know, want to get licensed somewhere else, then we have to go through NABP. And so if we were able to report these things through them, and it was like a mark on our license, then it would be something that's carried with us. And so I think that that's probably going to be the best way to at least start this. Um, I, again, it's just, if you go organization to organization, like I have been doing the past couple of months now, it's, it's very time consuming. And I know that they are all very invested in helping us and they all have zero tolerance policies and um, mindsets for harassment. It's just the the time it takes to really get through to someone who can make real decisions is a lot. Um, it feels like I have two full-time jobs right now. But I think something like through an ABP as far as reporting and cataloging these um these issues and these allegations that can't just go away if you move state to state or if you move to a different institution. I think that that's going to be like long-term the best thing that could happen out of all this. I really couldn't agree more with everything you just said, Becky. Um, so Todd, I appreciate you bringing that, this idea to the forefront. And I agree that while professional organization support is appreciated, unfortunately, it seems like this issue of sexual harassment is kind of in like open waters or international waters. So organizations, whether it's ACCP, SCCM, APHA, ASHP, they are assisting in our movement and our awareness of this issue. But unfortunately, a lot of these things or these events didn't occur at a meeting or through an organizational event. And on the other hand, they also didn't occur at an individual institution. Um, so there's really no single place like Becky mentioned for us to report this, and it ends up being a really time-consuming and tedious process. So I think the role of NABP in addressing this issue really would be ideal because this would provide, like you mentioned, documentation on a national level. And I think if states see this reinforced on a national level, they may introduce guidance or policies on a state level as well. So with NABP taking a stance and establishing policies, I really think this would influence employment and licensure. So as Becky mentioned, people in this situation or those doing this, the sexual harassing, they easily can move from institution to institution or state to state simply because there's no way of screening for professional misconduct. So I know when I was going through licensure, you have to answer the question of, have you ever been convicted of a felony or a federal offense? But there's certainly no question on there asking about professional misconduct. And I think sexual harassment falls into that category. Um, so having that screening really would inhibit people like this individual from moving to place to place and really threatening the well-being of professionals. And this is both male and female professionals that I'm speaking about. I appreciate that feedback, Jackie. And I, I want to make a note that we are we're taking this extremely seriously. We do have inroads to the NCPA, National Community Pharmacists Association, the American Pharmacists Association, as well as the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists and the NASP, the National Association of Specialty Pharmacies. They are aware of this is issue. I am going to reach out to the NAPB and get some feedback from them 
Um, we have uh, Carolyn Duran, um, who is the sitting elected president of the NAPB, and we'd like to very much uh, get her feedback and attention to the issue. And I also know who sits on the board of the NAPB, Dr. Jeffrey uh, Mezaros, and um, have had relation, uh, relations with him with projects out of NSU uh, down in South Florida. So I think this is very possible. I don't think it's as complex as we might make it. I think we all get nervous about um, issues like this because we think you know, the the mammoth um, undertaking of what it can be. But I think it can be simplified, especially with um, technology today and database today. Um, but I, I think it's necessary. And I think if NAPB is open to um, to building something uh, that, that can be put into place, I really believe that potential offenders, whether it be you know, innocent flirting to extremely offensive uh, text or touching or attacks are going to double think the jeopardy that they'll place their career in. And it deserves to be that severe because of, we know 55, 56% of our entire pharmacist army is women. And to have that stifled um, someone's career stifled based on, uh, you know, sexual harassment is a waste of time. It's a waste of uh, patient focus. It's a waste of resources. And it's certainly a waste of your three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 worth of education that many young pharmacists are in positions to, uh, to being tasked to even pay off. And the nervousness and the relapse and the and the the stress that that places a healthcare provider under, especially this day and age when we're in a pandemic where we need all hands on deck and focused, to have sexual harassment out there floating around, is absolutely ludicrous. So um, that that's where I believe that it is that severe, and it and it must be commanded by one ring ruling them all. And I agree with Jackie, I agree with, um, with uh, Rebecca and Brooke and Ashley that it should be the NAPB. So I guess as we move forward, I would like to call on ASHP to help us in um, setting up this inner organizational, whether it's through NABP or, or through the organization, some sort of harassment reporting mechanism. Um, and I also want to call on ASHP to also extend these, um, extend this to their RPDs. Um, currently, if you wanna be an RPD or a residency program director, I don't really think that you have to do anything. Um, and that's the same way if you are nominated for an award or you're up for a a leadership position within any organization. There's not any sort of like character um, clause or character affirmation that you have to do. And I think that that's an, an important thing that's missing as far as our residency program directors. Um, obviously they want to volunteer their time to mentor and teach the next generation of, of pharmacists in their respective specialties. But I think having them um, sign 
or attest to some sort of character statements um, prior to being placed as the RPD would be a great next step. Um, Jackie, do you have anyone you would like to call upon? Yeah, so I think NABP and ASHP are great organizations to ask to aid in this, this movement in this discussion. And being a critical care pharmacist and a member of this organization for, for quite some time, I do wanna also call on SCCM. Um, I feel this organization has aided me a lot in my transition in my professional growth over the years. And I'd love to continue to cooperate or continue to work with and be an active member in an organization like SCCM. But I think they too can take a stance and develop policies really reinforcing uh, good professional conduct and, and penalizing those who don't maintain uh, good and appropriate professional conduct. What about you, Ashley? Who would you like to call on? Yeah, I agree with both um, with you, both Jackie and um, Becky, about you know SECM and ASHP. I would personally like to thank ACCP for being um, really open and receptive to a lot of the comments that have gone around on social media about. Um, about all of this and making their their really strong statement about sexual harassment, I do think it's important for them to have a reporting mechanism since a lot of, you know, this is, I'm not in critical care, so I think both ASHP and something like ACCP um, are really strong organizations for any pharmacy individual regardless of specialty. So I think having some type of reporting mechanism through ACCP and some type of support um, for individuals who have gone through this, especially being that this is um, a, a huge venue for residents and like they're a lot of, they do a lot with residency things. So I think having a, a way for residents to be able to speak out and have a, a voice in, in all of this is really important. Um, I'll pass the baton over to Brooke to kind of say her, her call on or thanks to any kind of organization. Yeah, so between NABP, you know, SCCM, I think any specialty organization, definitely there's a role for a statement about, you know, gender inequality and sexual harassment. I do want to say that I think it's important to look at an, I know we said sometimes this doesn't happen on an institution level, but I think it's also just important to look around in your own institution, you know, who exactly can you go to or talk to if this does happen, you know, within the four walls of, of where you are. So even within our residency program, um, I do feel extremely thankful as my program director, uh, Komal Pandaya, has actually gone ahead and put a statement in about sexual harassment in our residency manual. So I think that that was a huge step forward um, to at least just make sure that there's a, some sort of space or somewhere where we can look to for guidance on how to go about reporting this. So I think, as you all mentioned, those organizations, as well as your own personal institution, you know, or even School of Pharmacy as well. All right. Thank you so much for um, this conversation. It's really pushing this entire issue forward. I don't want this to stop. I want it to become something that we will read about in a press release from the ASHP, the APHA, um, the AACP, um, the NAPB, any of those alphabet soup organizations that wants to get involved to put something in place that can assure our existing pharmacists and our future pharmacists that 
this will uh, not be tolerated as an organization within healthcare. And you are absolutely right. Uh, Jackie made comments about it being such a small uh, family inside healthcare, and it really is 380,000 registered active pharmacists. That's really not a lot when you're talking about 300 million lives that you're attempting to take care of, and and that you are you know assuring that medic medication safety is your top concern. And with that in mind, um, it it we must turn back to supporting our pharmacists and our women in pharmacy, and even in some cases, I'm sure, um, men in pharmacy, but regardless, sexual harassment cannot move forward in a day and age where we need, uh, we need you. We need pharmacists more than ever. Things are changing. It's getting more complex. Uh, healthcare dollars are spiraling and the uh, effectiveness in this sniper rifle of a pharmacist in care is so important. So. I am so proud of this panel. I want to give thanks to Dr. Brooke Barlow, Dr. Jackie Johnston, Dr. Rebecca Smith, and Dr. Ashley Barlow for participating in transforming the nation and ending sexual harassment in pharmacy. And um, listeners, please take action, retweet, reshare, repush, uh, do something, get in front of your um your governing bodies within your organizations that you're part of. If you're in a school of pharmacy right now, I want you to forward this episode uh, to the dean of the school and, and ask them to participate in ending. And the hashtag that was developed is hashtag R, and that's O-U-R-X, time is now. And it is now. It's time that this ends and it's time that we all stand together and I stand with pharmacy. We all stand with pharmacy and um, I'm so proud of, of all of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, thanks Todd. Thanks Todd, it's great to have your support. You were listening to the Pharmacy Podcast, Transforming a Nation series. We were talking about sexual harassment in pharmacy. We ask you to participate. We ask you to support your local community and health system, specialty and long-term care pharmacists out there. We love you. We support you. And we thank you so much for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Pharmacy Podcast.